you're cranking out consistent content and you're trying to shout about your brand, but you're in a bubble. No one knows you and it's this catch 22, right? If you have no audience, you're going to struggle to kind of spread just by word of mouth. Uh, you're going to struggle to get in front of fresh people. And so one of the best ways to do that in a controllable and repeatable way is to show up and provide value to other audiences. So what are we doing right now? I've joined Chris, who has a larger Twitter following than I do on Twitter Spaces. We're now chatting to 100 plus people and I get discoverability from doing this. talking about how to build community. Uh, I, I can't think of a better person to have co-host this conversation with me other than Tom Ross of Design Cuts. He's got a book called The Community Manual. I, along with many other people, are featured in the book. And so you can read it. I believe it's 100% free, right, Tom? It is indeed. And thank you so much. And I'm going to suggest that we lean in, listen to Tom a little bit. So without further ado, I'm going to turn this over to Tom. Thanks, Chris. Um, so yeah, I think first and foremost, it's important to understand what community is. And there's a lot of different definitions. I talked about this uh, on the Futures YouTube, but I think one of the strongest definitions of community in its truest sense is a platform or a place where like-minded people can actually interact and talk to one another. An audience is more one-way street. So when we post on our Instagram or we put out a YouTube video, that's typically considered more of an audience play because it's your audience consuming your content more passively. But something like the Future Pro Group, which Chris runs, or Learn Community that I run, these are closed spaces where like-minded people can come together, they can chat. And even when I'm asleep or Chris is asleep or you know we're on vacation, the community can continue to thrive without us. So I think that's a really important distinction. But even if you have no intention of launching a closed community, you still should be thinking about community because you can have an audience with a strong sense of community. This is where perhaps you're making it more immersive. You're you know, involving your followers and your fans. You're listening to them. You're trying to make it more of a dialogue. You're trying to involve them, um, build with them, etc. And this is very, very powerful too. And I think both Chris and myself have done this. So even before we launched um, our closed communities on Circle, even before we had things like Facebook groups, we had a strong feeling of community around both of our companies and both our brands. And this can be equally powerful. So they're different and they're distinct things. And it's important to understand the difference. But I think you should focus on both. And you've probably seen communities become a bit of a buzzword, you know, like authenticity. Everyone's shouting about community, community is the future. You should build community. Um, and I think it's important to get very clear on how to do that. And Chris, I don't know if you agree, but the deeper I go into this topic, the more I realize there's a lot of transferable lessons from general business and marketing and human principles. So it's not this kind of scary, esoteric thing that doesn't map to anything else in life. Actually, a lot of the principles are transferable. A lot of the stuff which myself and Chris talk about on a regular basis and this is things like, you know, getting the foundation right in terms of the value, the value proposition that you're promising people. It's being intentional about the people you're trying to reach, not catering to everyone and being selective and trying to create a great profile of, you know, your idle member or idle person. 
It's about picking the right structures for your community, being intentional about where to find members, where to go after them, you know, being intentional about, about picking platforms, how to appropriately price and not underprice yourself, how to market, how to scale, how to manage those people, how to keep up with engagement. There's a lot of topics to unpack in community. And I'm sure we're going to dig into a lot of that today. Um, but what I am noticing more and more is that the business stuff that I've talked on for years totally maps to community and often, you know, imposter syndrome, mindset struggles, underpricing yourself. A lot of these very common issues map to community building and community builders too. I don't know if you've experienced that, Chris, whenever you talk about community. A lot of the questions are probably stuff you answer kind of day to day anyway. Yeah, but you know what? Um, in case people have some questions about how we're doing what we're doing, what it is that we are actually doing, maybe we can we can do that because I don't want to make any assumptions that people know you or me and the communities that we're building. And you might find some differences in terms of how we structure our own communities. So, Tom, how is Design Cuts set up? You said you've surpassed 800,000 community members. That seems like a ginormous number. Is that even possible? Can you give us the high-level overview of what the Design Cuts community is? Yeah, and again, this comes down to the right definition. So we have over 800,000 members. This is people that have created accounts with us. But of course, not everyone's active and not everyone's in every single community space. So we have these kind of fragmented, closed communities and niche communities within that. We will have tens of thousands of people attend some of our live events, for example. That's a community space where people can come together, interact in, in the chat and so on, and form friendships. We have our circle community, which is now getting towards, you know, having thousands in the next few months. I think we're around 1,500 members, and we launched that quite recently. We have Facebook groups with tens of thousands of members. So community can actually start to be almost this ecosystem where you get these little pockets of uh, it could be different platforms within your community. It could be predicated on interest. So for example, we have a 10,000 person strong Procreate Facebook group. That's not relevant for every single one of our members that has an account, but for the people super into Procreate, that's a great place for them to hang out and uh, and spend time. And I, I believe you've got you know these different pockets with the future as well, right, Chris? It's not just the future pro group. You kind of have these different platforms. Yeah, and I, I think I separate those two things, and maybe I'm not understanding this correctly. I'd love to get your opinion on this. So we have, we're, we're coming up on 1.8 million followers or subscribers on YouTube. I, I think there's a, a conversation that's being had there, but I'm not quite sure it's the community that you've described earlier. I have a few followers on Instagram and on Twitter, but again, it's it seems to be it's like one direction versus bi-directional. And in, in the real place where I, I would consider we have a community is the Future Pro Group, which is in Circle, which we have, I think, close to 700 active paying members. And that's the only one I would consider under the classical definition of, of community. Am I getting this wrong? Would you have a different understanding of this? Uh, no, I, I think that's right in the strictest sense. And so it's the same thing for us. You know, arguably we have tens of thousands of community members living in hardcore community spaces um, but then we have a bigger audience i guess you could call it so in your case you have followers in our case we have members with accounts and so on but they're not all interacting in these closed community spaces and so on but again this kind of maps to a sense of community because chris as you know i featured you in my book the community manual a lot of what we talked about was how the future builds community at large so i would argue your community is much bigger 
than the several hundred members in the future pro group. There's probably a lot of people listening now, watching your YouTube, et cetera, that identify as a community member. And we get the same thing at Design Cuts. Long before we launched closed groups, Facebook groups, et cetera, people would rave about the community being part of the community. And I think that's where this sense of community is often predicated on things like a sense of belonging, uh, a sense of shared values, et cetera. And what I talked about in the book, in the case study featuring Chris, is how to cultivate this sense of community intentionally. And one of the strongest things you can do is have a very clear mission statement. And this is what the future do so well. They talk about this mission of impacting a billion lives, this one billion minus one. And this is incredibly prevalent right on the homepage of their website. And from the word, the, the word go, often people that discover the future, they get very emotionally invested, very mentally invested in that mission. They buy into it and they see other people buying into it. So even if they're not you know, a paying member in the future pro group, they kind of self-identify as like, I'm a, is it a futurist, Chris? Is that the term you're, you're yeah. using? There's a bunch of terms we use, but futurist sounds pretty good to me. Awesome. So um, again, I think with community, I always like to be very specific where possible, but it's not always black and white. So you have these distinctions of audience and community, sense of community versus natural community platform. Um, but I think community can become quite a holistic thing. And so uh, the future community, I would say it's definitely bigger than 700 people. And the design cast community is definitely bigger than, you know, a few tens of thousands or, or whatever it might be. Um, it is broader. We have a broader mission. We have a broader impact. People are buying into various degrees. Um, and it's the same thing with enclosed community spaces. It's an ecosystem. People will drop in and out. You'll get power users, passive users, and everything in between. And they're not going to be fixed for life. You know, some people might be super active for a month and then they go away and they come back three months later. It's this kind of organic, always moving, ever changing thing. And I think that's one of the things where people can struggle to understand it and define it um, because it isn't fixed. Okay, so here's a question for you, Tom. Is it necessary as part of your definition of community to have some kind of gate so that you have to opt in and you have to be let into the community? Or does anyone who identifies as part of the community, can they just say, I'm part of the community? I believe the latter. And an example of this is, for example, Trekkies right? You have different levels of engagement. So if you're a Star Trek fan, yeah, you can go to a convention and you can pay to show up, but equally you may self-identify as being, you know, a Trekkie, being part of the collective. And that could vary. That could mean that you're more of a passive consumer of the show and the vision and everything behind it. And you buy into that. Maybe you drop into some online discussions from time to time. Maybe occasionally you duck into uh, you know, a Twitter discussion or a Twitter space or a Facebook group. And then you get more, you know, deeply involved and you go to one of these conventions or maybe you go to a local meetup and then your life gets kind of busy. So you go back to being a more passive consumer of the show and kind of self-identifying in that way. None of these mean that you are, you know, a better or worse community member. It's not about better or worse. It's about this kind of fluctuating levels of engagement and identification and belonging. And I think as important as it is to correctly try and define these things, often it's just about trying to cater to all the different types of people as best we can. It's about trying to intentionally 
improve how we're catering to our community, trying to refine our mission and just kind of put our best foot forward. Because I would say if we get too hung up on definitions and trying to kind of pin people down, that can become problematic. Okay, so there's probably in my mind at least some separation between what I would consider a, a casual fan, a hardcore fan, and one who's actually on the inside of some kind of paid membership community. And there's just different tiers. I think we're just going to lump them all together as part of your larger community. But for me, there there's some separation there just by the level of engagement and how much commitment you've made to being a part of that community. So if I watch the, the Star Trek show, just based on your description, I can consider myself a Trekkie or a Star Trek fan. I've never gone to a Star Trek convention. I don't buy Star Trek memorabilia. And I really don't participate in any other way except for in a consumption point of view. So I would consider that just level one of engagement. Level two is actually when you go do something, when you physically are there or you're participating in some kind of way. Uh, perhaps it's joining um, some kind of discussion forum where you're you're actually now having your voice heard. You're sharing your opinion. You vote something up or down. You you follow someone and you're engaging with their content. I would consider that probably level two. Level three is probably something where money exchanges hands, where they they pay to be part of a community. And probably level four is that the community gets so exclusive that the entry uh, price or the gate is so high that only a small select group are part of that. And I think of somebody who's like Tony Robbins, where he has, I think they, they refer to them as the platinum members, where it's only a handful of people who are able to participate in very exclusive things, specifically with Tony. So there's just levels of commitment and engagement. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And various people have spoken out about this quite a bit. I own the the book Superfans by Pat Flynn, and that very much kind of is in alignment with what we're talking about right now. David Sphinx in his book Business of Belonging talks about this curve of engagement. And this maps to virtually any you know business or brand that's trying to build community. So even Airbnb is one of the examples he cites. And you kind of go up this curve of engagement from initially being a casual user, maybe there's been a couple of times that you've actually hosted a property um, or been a guest rather at a property, then you kind of get enticed to actually host your property and then you can become a super host. And then from there, you kind of get closer and closer into this community and this ecosystem and actually have some impact on what the company's doing. If I'm listening in on this and I don't necessarily consider community a buzzword it's it's been the thing since uh, i think humans learn how to cooperate with each other there's a community and then we have shared values we look out for each other and this is how that spirit of cooperation has led us to the 21st century why we have cities and we we have models of currency that we we believe in we follow laws that we all kind of agree to but what is happening is with the different social media platforms our ability to build community at scale is unprecedented in, in history. In fact, when you have an idea and, and you are pretty consistent about showing up for this, you can build community or sense of community or a group of people who, who are interested in the same ideas as you really rapidly. And that's a nice thing to do. And I think that's wonderful. And, and that could be the beginning and the end of your ambition. But if you want to build a community where people show up for for you in in terms of paid coaching group or when you're speaking at an event that they show up for you or they they buy your products in a way to support you and in, in allowing you to do what you do how does one do that if we we don't already have a decent sized following can you can you give us some insight on how to begin 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, just to clarify, Chris, are you talking about a closed community? So not, not so much building an audience on social media, but if I have no audience, how do I launch a closed community? Yeah, that's about right. I mean, or, or just like, how do I build a big enough community where they can support me? Kevin Kelly, the one of the co-founders and executive editors of Wired Magazine, wrote this very seminal piece of work, which is actually referenced in the book Superfans. In fact, I think Superfans is really taking Kevin's article and blowing it up into a full-size book. And Kevin says that in order for us to survive as an artist, to live a creative life, we don't need millions of fans or millions of dollars. What we need is we need 100,000 fans who are, I'm sorry, is that 100,000 fans? 10,000 true fans. Uh, a, a thousand. A thousand true fans. It's getting even smaller. See, look at that. You need a thousand true fans to be able to support you in what you do so that you can earn $100,000 a year net profit. And so it's actually not even that many fans that you have to, have to build. But for some, even having a thousand true fans who are willing to spend money to support you is not an easy thing to take on. So whether it's part of a paid coaching group or not, it could just be a t-shirt or postcard, um, some color presets for, for Lightroom or something like that. They're willing to support you. So how do we do that, Tom? That is the question. So I'm going to talk kind of more holistically about how to build audience as well and how, how to build some of those fans and obviously that maps to community there's a lot of ways i think first and foremost you need to have strong foundations because ultimately people are not going to want to show up follow you support you and join your community if you're muddy in terms of what you're offering so i would always start there i think you need to be clear in answering those fundamental questions you know who am i serving who am i showing up for who am i trying to attract and what is the reason why they're going to support me what value is in it for them? And those are some of the biggest questions you need to ask in business and indeed in community. And I think far too many people kind of half know that or just jump the gun and skip that step and then wonder why they're struggling to find any traction. So I would always start there. Once you've done that, realize that it's a game of patience. So if we're talking about accruing, you know, thousand fans or a considerable audience, it takes time. And you know, both myself and, and very much Chris are living proof of that. So Chris, how long have you been building audience for? Because you have these millions of fans and followers now, but it didn't happen overnight, right? It did not happen overnight. I would say officially the very first video I posted on YouTube was in January, January of 2014. And it was just dipping the toes in the water. I wasn't really thinking about any long-term plans, but that would be the beginning. Incredible. So, you know, coming up on a decade, there's a lot of years there. And Chris has been very consistent and very prolific in doing that and very intentional. He's got a clearly defined value proposition, very clearly defined idea of who he's trying to cater to, you know, specifically often teaching business to the creative industry, to the creative uh, community at large. So all of these things are kind of in alignment. But even with that, it's taken seven years of just consistent grafting and putting out content at scale. And I know how hard Chris works on this, but that isn't enough. And Chris, you may not know this, but whenever I start talking about distribution, your name comes up. So for anyone that doesn't know, distribution is intentionally getting in front of existing wider audiences. And this is so essential because otherwise what happens is you're cranking out consistent content and you're trying to shout about your brand, but you're in a bubble. No one knows you and it's this catch 22, right? If you have no audience, you're going to struggle to kind of spread just by word of mouth. Uh, you're going to struggle to get in front of fresh people. 
And so one of the best ways to do that in a controllable and repeatable way is to show up and provide value to other audiences. So what are we doing right now? I've joined Chris, who has a larger Twitter following than I do on Twitter Spaces. We're now chatting to 100 plus people and I get discoverability from doing this. Hopefully I'm going to make some good points, provide some value, and some people may follow and support me. And this is something that I see Chris doing very well. In fact, Chris, you're literally one of the best people I know at doing this. I'm almost trying to follow in your footsteps by ramping these efforts up. Because whenever I do something like this with Chris or we have a call, he's like, oh, I got to go. I got four more of these this afternoon. You know, I've got a Twitter spaces, then I'm doing a clubhouse, then I'm doing a podcast interview. And you are just relentless with your distribution efforts, which means that every single day you're picking up new fans and new people that have never heard of you because you're getting in front of new audiences consistently. It is a lot of work, Tom, not going to lie. It is a lot of work. And at first I have to tell you that as an introvert, as a person who was not used to uh, hearing my voice, volunteering to speak at anything in the classroom, even at my company or with clients, it's been a long, long journey to get to this point in which I'm actually looking forward to it. But I want to share one other thing with you because I think there are a lot of introverts in the creative space is that for me, after I do one of these conversations, I am wiped out. I'm drained of energy. These things do not energize me. But this is the work that you need to commit yourself to and mentally prepare for. There's lots of things that you can do to make it a little bit easier for you. And I, I'm happy to share that if people have questions about how you as an introvert and as one who's not used to being seen or heard, how you can overcome some of these things and tips and techniques to develop your voice and how to use the distribution networks that are out there to help you gain an audience and to build up your brand and authority. Back over to you, Tom. I would actually love to hear that if you're happy to share a couple of pointers now because I'm an extrovert. So after these, I'll kind of run into the kitchen and say good evening to my wife and I'm like hyperactive. I get really energized, um, I, which is weird, right? Like, uh, but I do not know how you do it. Because even for me as an extrovert, when I do hours and hours of these, like you get physically sapped of energy. So if you're getting mentally sapped too, how on earth do you manage that, Chris? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, maybe this is a good time, Tom, for us to do this. I'd like to invite Michael to the stage. How do you want to contribute to the conversation today around community? Uh, thank you so much, Chris. <laughs> I actually had a good question for you, which was more so um, how do you resuscitate a community that's that's dead or that seemingly is dead? You know, how do you get people to get back on that vision with you? So I, I think that was a question I wanted to ask you as well. Tom, how do you resuscitate a community that's gone stale? In terms of how to do it, I think it can be that kind of like Phoenix moment, right? You're rising from the ashes. And I would use this as an opportunity to take a breath and set a firm new direction for what you're doing. And you want to get your community and your followers invested in that. So I don't know if you're going to be doing exactly the same thing that you did before. Maybe you want to have a, a small pivot or adjustment or something like that. I would, in public, build with your community. I would share that very openly and get people bought into that new mission. And to be honest, after that, I think it's just about consistency because if you start posting quality content every single day again or whatever's manageable in two months, four months, six months, no one's going to remember that you took a break. And I've seen this time and time again, you get that initial kind of return to it and it feels a little strange and you need to get back into the rhythm from a content creation standpoint. And maybe your audience, you know, some of them are kind of fallen off, but it's just the game of consistency, right? 
think of it like a diet. If you kind of fell off and became unhealthy, it doesn't mean you're never going to be healthy again. It just means it might take, you know, a little period of time to get back to that. And then you have the rest of your life to kind of keep up those good habits. So there's more I can share, but yeah, that, that would be a good starting point. What I would say just to kind of uh, a little tactical final note here, you could do some fun stuff with that to, you know, give a little, um, a little jolt, a little spark into the start of this new journey. So what is not that exciting is just you pick up posting again, like nothing happened. What could be exciting is that for that first week that you're back, maybe you commit to doing something manageable like a 15 minute or a 30 minute live each of those days and you turn it into a bit of an event week. So you're there like forming deeper connections with your people, really trying to re-engage them and involve them in some interesting ways. Just something different that isn't just adding to the noise or kind of just completely repeating your approach previously. I, I think often it needs that little push when you get back to it just to wake people up and go, oh, yeah, I remember Michael. He's back. He's doing some interesting, different stuff. All right. Next question comes from this idea of how does an introvert, someone who's shy, who's not used to speaking or being seen, how are you able to create content and what is the approach versus, say, someone who's an extrovert? As a pretty shy, socially awkward introvert, one who for, for most of my teenage, from birth to about 20 years old, I would rather be invisible than to be seen. Uh, I want to let you know that it's very hard for me to start conversations with people. When I'm invited to parties and events, even speaker parties, I dread going to these things and it's very difficult for me. So I'm going to share a little story and put this in perspective for some of you. I desired to build co- connections with people. I don't want to die a loner. I don't I don't want to be the kid in the room that's in the corner by himself thinking, God, nobody cares, and what do I do? And it's very difficult. And if this is you, I'm going to give you the secret sauce to how you can overcome this, okay? Eric Edmitas talks about this in his uh, The Secret of Public Speaking or something. He gave a talk for Mind Valley Talks, and he, and he says there's something called the stage effect, that when you're on stage, you have an unfair advantage when you're facing the audience. And we all know this. First of all, you're most likely physically elevated above people on stage. You are sometimes two to three feet above everyone. They do this so that we can see you. And you are literally in the spotlight when everyone else is in literally the darkness. And so you have this huge advantage. And he talks about this formula. He said that the quality of your presentation plus, I think it's times, not plus, but plus the size of your audience equals your level of attraction. There's something strange, this phenomenon that when we get together and we see someone on stage, the, the power of their attraction or their draw is multiplied by all the people around us. We have this communal experience together and we're, we're seeing this person. Why do I share any of this? Because as an introvert, it's the easiest way to get people to come and talk to you. I know it sounds really crazy. I would rather go through the personal torment and the nerves of going up on stage and doing some public speaking so that afterwards people will feel like they know me and will connect with me so that I don't have to figure out how to start these conversations. I'll tell you what kind of weirdo I am. I'm at Adobe Max many years ago. It's my first Adobe Max ever. And I hadn't registered for any of the events, so they're all kind of booked up. So all I could do was wander the hallways. As I was waiting to figure out what to do, the doors opened up to these different um, rooms where speakers were speaking in and a flood of people would come out and they're making their way to the venue, either grabbing lunch or just checking out the exhibits. And I stood there 
And it was kind of interesting because people would then, hey, I love your content, saw you, you know, I really appreciate what you do. They were just throwing out things as they're walking past me. And I think that is one way we as introverts can can actually build connections with people is through public speaking. And, and I hope that idea helps you a little bit. Over to you, Tom. Yeah, I think that's super smart. Kind of shifting gears slightly, but within this topic, I think one of the best things you can do in business in general um, is position yourself in the right way. So to kind of follow on from your speaking analogy there, I think when you're actually building something that can be impressive or meaningful or high quality in public, it has a similar effect. And people are often worried about how do I network? How do I reach out to, you know, high worth individuals, all, all that kind of LinkedIn BS. And I think the best thing that can happen is inbound interest where people are coming to you. The next best thing outside of that, which you can do is operate on a more similar level to the people that you're trying to connect with. So it's really hard to go and approach someone that's like, you know, infinitely more successful or established than you are because they get bombarded every single day. But when you look at like Hollywood A-list actors, for example, they're generally friends with each other more than their friends with like some random stranger that kind of wants a piece of them or part of their time because there's this built-in credibility. And so the same way Chris gets up on stage and gives a talk and people want some of his time, which is inbound, equally if Chris wants to go and connect with another community builder or another business leader, it's going to be a lot easier for him to do that because he's kind of playing at their level compared to someone with 10 Instagram followers. It's not impossible, but it's infinitely easier. Okay, Gio, so go ahead. Hi, Chris. So my question would be, how do I handle my own uncertainty to onboard people onto something that I feel is is valuable and cool, but I'm not really knowledgeable. And I kind of feel sometimes just like, ah, no, I'm not going to do it because, but I, I kind of feel like I, I can and I should, but I don't because I, I doubt myself, I guess. How do you overcome that doubt? That's probably the best way to put it. Okay. So let me see if I can rephrase the question. And then I've been taking notes here. So we'll, we'll answer this in a little bit. But Gio wants to know, how can he start teaching, sharing what it is he knows, even though he has a healthy dose of imposter syndrome because he knows things about something else, but he might not know as much about what it is that he wants to talk about. And how does he overcome that doubt? Is that about the gist of the question, Gio? Yeah, that's the answers of it. Okay, we'll go over to Ben. Ben, do you have a question or something you want to contribute? Um, you mentioned you've got one... 0.6 million subs and your sort of stated brand purposes tell telling um, teaching one billion people how to make a living from doing what they love is that right that's correct uh so there's a difference between telling a billion people and teaching them so like my question is what are the challenges that like the future is facing in relation to that goal like strategically and how does it relate to scale and community time for a quick break but we'll be right back This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. 
Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here at The Future, we believe that you are the master of your own fate. The future is yours for the making. This is why we've made our season of savings offer something you can personalize. Design your own curriculum and get access to the tools you need. Lettering, portfolio design, animation, illustration, and more. Listen, there are only a handful of days left in 2023. Make them count and start the new year off right. Save 25% on all courses, resources, toolkits, and merch throughout November by visiting thefuture.com forward slash season of savings. We'll see you there. Welcome back to our conversation. Tom, let's tackle that first question from Gio and, and hopefully everybody else that has raised their hand to, to speak. And hopefully you're in a place where you can actually speak. Otherwise, I'll move you back down. Okay. So, Tom, why don't we tackle the first question from Gio? Sure. Um, so, Gio, thank you for the question. I think obviously imposter syndrome is incredibly common, whatever space you're in. I think part of the opportunity is to share in public, build in public. So as you learn, become a documentarian. Start documenting the things which you learn. And there's tremendous power. You don't need to be at step 50 in your journey, even if you're at step one, two, or three, to someone that is behind and earlier than you, someone at step zero who's curious, your lessons from step one, two, and three are going to be invaluable to them. If anything, there's tremendous value in the fact that you're closer to their journey. Often when people are like 20 years in, they misremember how tough or how convoluted or confusing something was um, at the start of their career. So the fact that you're living it right now, I would document all of that. There's um, a guy I've been connecting with recently called Jay Klaus. He was publicly documenting his effort to breed consistency on Twitter. So he started the Tweet 100 Challenge. Within that, he publicly documented how the challenge was going. He showed up every day for 100 days. And other people started using hashtag tweet 100 to participate. So 100 days later, he has over 1,600 people doing this challenge with him. He's now launched a premium community off the back of it. Um, and he's got a ton of new followers. And a genuine community has formed um, just from him sharing publicly. He could have done all of this quietly. He could have been learning about Twitter and kind of doing it under the radar. But because he was so public, it allowed people not only to learn from him, but to buy in and it benefited him and his brand. Gio's question is a very common question that a lot of people have, which is, I don't feel like I'm an authority 
Therefore, I'm not going to do anything until I become an authority. And so you sit kind of dormant for a really long time while you put in your 10,000 hours of practice and learning and research. But there's a huge opportunity that you're losing out on an opportunity cost, if you will, because when you're ready to emerge, that will be the first time you're really introducing yourself. The, the different or the preferred way to do this is to just recognize this one idea. Everyone is an amateur at one point. Everyone is an amateur at one point. If you come to the conversation not pretending to be more than you are, that you're transparent, you're vulnerable, and you're real, I think you're going to onboard people so they don't sit there and question you, like, who do you think you are? You don't know anything, right? So I'm at my heart, at my core, a graphic designer. That's what I studied in school. And so my identity is very strong. It's very confident when I speak about things about graphic design. But as you may know, the thing that more people know me about for today is, is when I talk about marketing, when I talk about content creation or sales and negotiations, things I did not study in school. And so there's always this thing that bubbles up inside of you to say, well, this isn't my core identity. Who am I to be doing this? So I make sure if I'm going to enter in a room, I'm going to speak to business people about sales and marketing who this is all they do. What I try to do is I lean in on the part that makes me unique and different versus the part that I'm trying to be more like them. So I'm going to bring in a creative angle and I'm going to present it in a way that only a designer or creative person would talk about these things. And I want to bring that energy and that enthusiasm in. So when you're still learning, disclose to people, this takes away a lot of the fear. Just let them know, hey, I'm actually doing a lot of research and I'd like to share with you what I'm learning as I learn it. And what happens is you gain authority by articulating your thoughts. And we all want to be seen at some point, I think, as an expert versus an amateur. And you can just do this one piece of content at a time. And to realize it's a long journey and it's okay that people question you because you're questioning yourself and you've disclosed that. So it's not like it's not like a case of the talented Mr. Ripley. You're not afraid someone's going to discover this horrible secret about you because you've already told them, I'm learning. And I find that when you do that, it takes away a lot of your internal pressure to speak like an expert because in truth, you're not. I hope that helps you, Gio. It does help so much, man, because... What I realize, as you guys are saying, is that, you know, documenting it and upfront kind of telling that that I'm on a on the journey rather than trying to say, like, you know, this is the right thing or, or that maybe maybe that's how I should start every post or anything, like always putting that disclaimer up front so that I feel comfortable and people might feel. Uh, yeah, that, that sounds on spot. Okay. You know, every journey has, I think, three components to it. The start, which is when you decide to actually take action on what it is that you want to do. There's that middle part, and Scott Belsky calls it the messy middle. Um, Seth Godin will call it the dip. And then there's the destination when you actually arrive. So many of us are afraid to talk about this journey only when we're at the destination, when we know everything has worked out, because it doesn't require any bravery. There's no guessing. There's no like, uh, I don't know exactly what I'm doing. But the parts that are most interesting and the parts that are overlooked is that that messy middle or the dip in which you struggle. And then it's the dark night of the soul and you're questioning yourself. That's where there's a lot of tension and conflict. And if you're a fan of story structure, uh, Robert McKee talks about this, no conflict, no story. And so 
in our pursuit to try to build community, to enroll people in our story, we just tell them at the end, like it all worked out. See, see what a genius I am. See how it all, like all the smart decisions I made. Because we don't have to worry about them judging us. But the best part was the part that most of us skip over. And I have to tell you, I have this uh, pr- pretty large community of 700 people who I'm trying to help tell their stories, but this is the part they get hung up on the most because they feel like if they share this part where they struggled, where, where they didn't know what they were doing, where they, they either were fired or made some horrific mistakes or lost a client because of some stupid thing they said or did, that no one will look at them as an authority. But it's the exact opposite. When people are so confident, so comfortable to tell you, here's how I effed up this job. Here's where I screwed up. Here's where I lost money. Here's where I, I, I zigged instead of zagged. When, when you tell people so clearly like that, they actually think higher of you because you must be a very confident person to be able to say these things. So the opposite is true. Trying to hide your failures and your struggles makes you seem less confident while speaking about your failures and your struggles actually helps you to, to at least in the eyes of the beholder, gain in confidence. So it's kind of really weird. All right, let's go to our next question. Ben said, okay, you have 1.8 million subscribers on YouTube. It's a metric. And then you have this other stated goal of impacting the lives of a billion people, teaching them how to make a living doing what they love. How are you going to be able to do this? What are the challenges around teaching? Now, Ben, I'm with you. I make no delusion in my mind that having almost 2 million subscribers does not equal 2 million uh, transformations. I, I don't. I don't think that at all. How am I going to do this? I do not know. But I am, uh, as part of my identity, a teacher. And so what I'm trying to do is to impact the lives, give them the tools that they need to be able to solve their problems, not to memorize scripts or copy a formula. That's not really teaching. It has to be the transference of knowledge so that they can apply it in a creative way to a problem they have yet to see. That, to me, is a sign of a, uh, the hallmark of a good teacher. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to need the rest of my life and maybe multiple lifetimes to be able to accomplish this. I'm not sure. But what happens when I set such a big, hairy, audacious goal, a BHAG, I have to think differently. I have to think, you know, when when a school asks me to speak or do a workshop for three students, is that really moving the needle? Is this going to get me to where I need to be? So having those clear goals helps me to make different decisions Um, If you have goals like that, they become filters for what you should and absolutely should not do. And I think that helps to give me clarity. I also think about when we're on platforms like this, I may impact the life of two people or one person. And that person goes on to teach and to share. And I, I know it's kind of funny math, but I would then consider that part of the billion mission. I don't think literally I can teach a billion people but again, teach enough teachers to teach more people. And then that's how we begin to make this change. And you know what? If I fail at 500 million by the time I'm dead, I can still go to the grave knowing I've done something good in my life. So it's like a North Star, basically. Sort of like, Absolutely. You say that to yourself. It, it reminds me of sort of like uh, the goading thing as well. It's just like you, you tell everyone you can. And whoever listens, they got to run with it. And it's like Gary Vaynerchuk says it as well. It's just like, not everyone's going to like my style. If I just shout loud enough for long enough, People will get it and they'll spread it as well. And it, something else you said reminded me of the, the the model of like DIY, done do it yourself, done with you, and done for you as well. It's like sort of like a content approach to that, where it's like you give people the tools to do it themselves. So here's it done, here's how it's done. You kind of got that with the program group as well, I guess. It's like so, but here's a bit to do with you. Yeah, there 
you know, because seeking advice isn't all that effective, right? You tell somebody what to do, more likely than not, they actually don't listen to you, they fight you, and then they can solve that exact problem when it appears again. But when the problem is different, they haven't actually learned it. And it's it's a difference between memorization and actually absorbing a lesson and being able to make different kinds of decisions. Uh, those are the tools. So really, I focus on tools uh, not literally tools, but things that help people to get unstuck or to see a problem a different way. You you mentioned the word reframe. It's one of my favorite words to reframe what it is you're looking at. So then the solution becomes a lot clearer to you. Yeah, mental models. Thank you, Ben. Okay, let's do this. Um, Bradley, you're up next. Hello. Um, I had a sort of broad question. I'd like uh, any thoughts that everyone had. I work at a cooperative for uh it's a grocery cooperative and i was just wondering we're very focused on community and i'm wondering even at like that small scale where we're we're pretty local what are um what's everyone's thoughts on uh the cooperative business model in terms of this conversation tom you want to take that one yeah being perfectly honest you know i'm aware of but not in depth familiar with the cooperative business model that being said, I think there's tremendous power in local communities and indeed smaller communities. And where it's this kind of grassroots thing, it's on a smaller scale, you can just build such depth with those people. And I think something which is highly effective on a local level is where you're organizing uh, local events and these kind of time sensitive things which bring people together in an intentional way. I think it's not always enough uh, when you have smaller numbers of people just to have this kind of collective mission or something that you're showing up for, I think you actually need to kind of organize very specific things such as events to uh, to bring people together. I don't know if that's helpful, Bradley. That's my kind of initial thoughts, but I'm going to I'm gonna mute and kind of think on this as the question unfolds. Yeah, I, I think um, the two co-ops, there's a, there's a grocery co-op uh, where we used to frequent close to the office. And then there's a much bigger co-op. I believe REI is considered a co-op and I'm a member. I, I pay to be part of the group. And when I buy things there, I get dividends. They, they give me money back. And I think the general concept is it's uh, we, we share ownership of a thing. And so they're not f- solely focused on making profit. They, they want to get the things that the community needs and so, to support the local community, but also to give you back some of your purchases. Is that the general idea, Bradley? That is the general idea. And I guess most of my thoughts were based around this idea of like, you know, we're not all going to touch a billion people's lives. But as you said, like, we can have our part to make it happen overall for everybody. And um, I think that I think there's something to be learned from that model, even if you don't fully endorse it. Yeah. So given that Tom and I are relatively unfamiliar with the the core business model, can you frame that question in a different way that maybe we can contribute more to? And on the back of that, I'd love to know what are you currently doing uh, to build community? Why are people kind of bought into this? And then we can maybe think of ways to amplify that. Um, so some of the things that we do is we have like every co-op basically signs up with like seven principles. And um, it's like concern for community, like um, helping other co-ops, democratic control, like um, member supported. So the people who use the co-op are the owners of the co-op. Um along those lines like um it's all just like a general set of like guiding lights for every co-op even even outside of your own co-op and it seems like i joined onto this call because like community is my my job is like owner services like being concerned about the community so i'm very interested in this conversation in general 
Bradley, I know. sorry to interject. Where, where do your people come together currently? Where are the spaces for this community? So uh, we have a grocery store that the people in like my area go to and we do events and things like that as well. But like that's that's the gist of it. It's like one specific thing. REI is a cooperative and it's the same idea. Mm -hmm. Like it's all like mountain climbing and hiking and like outdoors event. Uh, or Got it. So, so it's in a physical space outside of, you know, physically being there or attending an event. Is there any community that kind of happens in the downtime between those moments? Oh, yes, absolutely. We partner with a lot of other groups that are also doing events and we kind of like work together with other groups to do things all the time. There's a national chain of co-ops that we all work together to like share burden of marketing and, and stuff like this. And like this model of like helping each other. Cool, because th there's two big things. I, I mentioned events already. I was going to mention something along the lines of what you, you just talked about. So I guess to Chris's point, in framing your question, is there a particular struggle? Because you know, it sounds like you have something great in place. You're already doing some fundamental things you, you'd expect from this type of community. Is there a particular community-related struggle? It is very hard to get such a like like nebulous idea of what co-ops are out to people. Like even as this conversation is proving, like it's really hard to narrow down like what the what the gist of the message is, even though it feels simple, it, it turns out to be complex for us. You know, I just think about this is because Tom and I are building communities at scale. So I'm thinking about the local model and what we can both learn from each other. And I think there's something uh, to be said for this. Prior to the pandemic hitting, one of the things I was trying to do is create a physical clubhouse where members of my community who had access to it, people I could trust, could come by and hang out and be part of this and participate and meet and hang out with other similarly minded people. And I think that's really cool. Um, this idea of giving back to, to people who belong to your community some portion of what it is they spend is intriguing to me. I have to think on this a little further. But then I think since Tom and I are here, maybe what we should be talking about is how you can leverage other kinds of social platforms and tools so that your community can exist beyond the physical interaction that they have in the store or the events that you produce. Maybe there's something there. So Bradley, if, if that were a question thrown back at you, how would you respond to that? Uh, we do try to do that as well, yes, um, to varying levels of success. Uh, being local with like, there's no way we are, you know, we don't want people from like three states over or from another country. Like it's, they're not going to be able to come to the store and shop. So like, it's hard to go to scale. But I think that there's a lot that we can apply from other people's models as well. So um, I, I am very satisfied with the answers that I've gotten so far. I wasn't expecting like a, rev a revolutionary thought you know, out of nowhere. <laughs> well, thank you. I, like I look at REI as probably, the, at least in my mind, the largest co-op I'm aware of. They're, they run a national operation. And there is, like, I don't know if you guys know this, but they actually do sell um, slightly used or worn things just to help, thing, to help not put things into uh, the trash heap. And I think it's kind of important. And, and I've been on a couple of different expeditions, not expeditions, that's a, too big of a word, but REI organized events where they find a guide and we meet up somewhere and we go uh, overnight backpacking and they do trips uh, abroad, uh, at least prior to the pandemic. And so I think that's kind of neat. They can act locally, but they can also leverage other kinds of tools, newsletters, uh, virtual uh, 
events that we can get together and we can talk and we can share ideas. I think anything you can do to strengthen the bonds of the people you define as your community. So you have a, a geographic limitation because it's it's not realistic or desirable actually for people to drive across state or more than a few, like 30 miles to go to your store and shop, right? And so what can you do to strengthen the relationship you already have with those people and, and to use the tools that are available to you on, on social platforms to just deepen that. Yeah. And my final thoughts, are: I would take everything that people love the most that makes the co-op special, bottle it, figure out a way to put that in an online community. So kind of similar to what Chris wanted to build in real life. Let's say you call it the co-op online clubhouse or something like that, and then have some kind of mechanism where people have to have discovered it on a local level. So for example, if there were ads throughout the co-op where people could scan a code on their phone, and that was like the secret unlock that got them in the clubhouse, because I think what most co-ops and and local businesses do is pretty boring, right? They slap up a Facebook page and it's not a community and it's not very interactive. So if there was this extension of the co-op experience in a secret online space, which you had to unlock and access via a local level, then the two become symbiotic because then you can host online events, you can host in real life events, you can promote the in real life events in the online space and vice versa. Um, And it kind of starts to feed each other. And as Chris says, it kind of continues that experience in a more ongoing, permanent way, um, even outside the physical location. Jimothy, you're up next. So I have a question regarding um, mental health, the field of mental health and building a community in the social media age. So for example, um, in my country, there are some very prominent organizations that have have been in the field for a while. They have a huge following. They have people who trust them and know them. And in the mental health field, you need that kind of trust so that uh, people can come and see you. People can engage with you on many different directions. And other than that, there's also a lot of players in the in the mental health field. So you'll find there are mental health advocates, there are people who are mental health lived experience survivors. So everybody is speaking and I feel like there's a lot, a lot of information floating in this field and this profession. So I think my question then goes, how does a beginner, somebody who's just like graduated from um, university, they, they're just getting into the profession. What do you think some of the things they should apply to become more of a signal than a noise in this entire space? Um, and above that, I want to say thank you for the work that you do. I have recommended your work, Chris, to every designer that I know. So thank you. Well, thank you so much. Okay, so you're talking about something about mental health and community, about how you can uh, reduce the noise and increase the signal, especially at the beginning parts of your content creation or your knowledge base, right? Yes, exactly. Okay, yes. great. I think we talked about that a little bit, so we, we should be able to answer this question pretty straightforwardly. Okay, so let's move on to Ingrid. Ingrid, what's your question or, or how do you want to contribute? I share a lot of knowledge online. I just have uh, not much uh, public reactions on those uh, those type of uh, uh, knowledges I share on my online platforms, but I do have private messages and those are really interesting questions I answer to those peoples. But those are questions that can totally be answered within my community because I bet some other people have those questions too. But they tend to privately communicate with me rather than post it publicly. So um, my question is, how do you get them to publish it publicly so everyone can uh, see those questions answered? 
Wonderful. Uh, the topics that you talk about, is it something that people would find professionally embarrassing or personally embarrassing? No, it's just online marketing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. It shouldn't be that. Okay. I know how to answer that question. Great. So your question is, uh, you have no problem sharing content, but you're finding that you don't get a lot of engagement except for in the DMs. But you're like, I want to have this conversation publicly. It doesn't help me as much and doesn't help others when it's one-on-one. Is that right? True that. Okay, beautiful. Thank you very much, Ingrid. So, all right, let's circle back here um, from uh, it's a, a Jimothy's question about mental health signals noise. Uh, she's at the beginning of um, what she's trying to do, and she's not quite comfortable doing that. So, how how can she focus in on that, Tom? Yeah, I think um, the question was really how do I break through the busy noise of content overwhelm, and I think there's two ways which I think about this. One is to synthesize. So if there's a space where there's a lot going on, it's information overload, you're likely not the only one experiencing that. And I think if you're the one willing to collate it, organize it, weed out the good information from the bad and synthesize it into some kind of consolidated summary, there's tremendous power in that for you and also others. Um, So for example, whether it is mental health or Web3 or any of the topics that have been discussed, I don't necessarily have the time to go spend 17 hours digging through good, bad, and average advice. But what I do have time for is to see a Twitter thread, for example, of someone that's done that. They've publicly said, you know, this is not my ideas, but I spent 17 hours digging through them and I've consolidated the best findings very succinctly into content for everyone. I see this model work all the time. So that's one way. The other way, which is arguably harder, is differentiation. So whenever there's a busy space, you have to kind of zig where everyone else is zagging. You have to audit and analyze how other people are behaving and what they're doing with community, what they're doing with content. And then you intentionally do it in a very different disruptive way. And that's a whole topic in itself. Um, So we maybe don't have time to unpack that, but that's the two ways I think about this question. Good job, Tom. Um, I, I think the thing that I see a lot are people who submit carousels for me to post and share. And it feels oftentimes what they do is they literally just read something and command C, copy, command V, paste. And there is no voice in there. There's no personal experience and there's no real insight. And so I just feel like it's just people regurgitating content all the time. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but it's not the content that turns me on. If you think about the kind of content that makes you excited that you feel like there was a breakthrough, do your best to reverse engineer what's happened to you emotionally, what you're reading, how you feel in the moment, and try to extrapolate the structure in which they they were able to, to use and what's underlying the content itself. Did they begin their post with something super emotional where it was like a cliffhanger? How did they hook you into reading the rest? Why did you continue to read all of it versus just stopping and going on about your day? Was it an image they used? What is it about that image? Ask yourself a lot of those questions and then that becomes a pretty good framework. Uh, Jim Rohn said famously, success leaves clues. All we have to do is bend over and pick it up. And so if you study the greats, uh, and the great is up to you to define, whoever that might be, really break down what they're doing, analyze it, reverse engineer it, and that becomes a very good blueprint for you to be able to create content that's more signal and less noise. I hope that's helpful. And now we're going to move over to Ingrid's question. Thank you very much, Jimothy. Uh, Ingrid's question is about uh, sharing knowledge online, low interaction, uh, people jumping in the DMs, but not really willing to have the conversation publicly. 
and it's not really scalable for Ingrid. Tom, what do you what do you say about that? I love this question because I experience this all the time, not just on social media, but in learn.community, my closed community. I constantly have people DMing me, private messaging me with a question. My answer without fail is, are you willing to post this publicly in the forum? Because I want to answer you, but I think we can help more people by addressing this publicly. So my simple answer would be ask. And I'd be surprised if people were like, no, I refuse to. I only want to talk to you in private. Normally people are very amenable to the idea of getting help but helping others in the process. I'm the same way. And I think people aren't always super comfortable asking questions publicly because maybe it's not phrased properly or they just don't want other people to know that they're asking these kinds of questions. But what you don't realize is that people have very limited time they're not in the business of giving you free coaching, consulting advice in the DMs. Plus, it takes a long time to write your your response. So I think you have to just give them a choice. And I, I love what Tom just said there. So for me, I like to give people a choice. One, you could book a session with me and I can do this privately, but it's going to be quite expensive to do one-on-one. Or you can ask this question publicly or you can join me on, on Twitter spaces or a clubhouse or a live stream somewhere and you can ask it openly that way. That way we can help more people. That's the intention anyways. Mostly because, as you guys can predict, it's the same questions that are being asked over and over and over again. And so at least, if we're going to answer the same question again, maybe 10, 20, 50 people who, who needed to read that today would have seen it as well. So we want to help those people. And, and that's the only way you can teach an impact at scale. So especially with your topic of marketing, it seems, Ingrid, that people would be more open to this. Uh, perhaps it's them needing some help. And so if you consistently get the same kinds of questions or problems and you're tired of answering them, what I would do is create a piece of content to say, I'd love to help you. Here's a problem when you send me a question in the DMs. It's really hard because I don't have context. I'd rather have a conversation or I'd like to help more people than just the one person in the DMs. And so that then becomes a thing that you can just point people to and create a little uh, keyboard shortcut. And that way, when you type in a few letters, it gives them the URL to that specific video or that post and they can read that. And that even saves you even more time. Was that helpful to you, Ingrid? Love it. Just ask it. Yeah. Couldn't think of it myself. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm not going to take any more questions uh, from the audience right now. It, it's almost time for me to wrap up here. But before I do so, Tom, are there any other final nuggets, words of wisdom that you want to share with people on Twitter here? I will simply say this has been a blast as ever. I love the questions, the insights, and thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app and get a new insightful episode from us every week. The Future Podcast is hosted by Chris Doe and produced by me, Stuart Schuster. Thank you to Anthony Barrow for editing and mixing this episode. And thank you to Adam Sanborn for our intro music. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor by reviewing and rating our show on Apple Podcasts. It will help us grow the show and make future episodes that much better. Have a question for Chris or me? Head over to thefuture.com slash heychris and ask away. We read every submission and we just might answer yours in a later episode. 
you'd like to support the show and invest in yourself while you're at it, visit thefuture.com. You'll find video courses, digital products, and a bunch of helpful resources about design and creative business. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.